0: And the same thing was happening for space officers. So for example, if you were someone working in acquisitions and you were going to take a course, and we heard this from space officers themselves, that the, the materials used and the examples used would have nothing to do with the space systems that were part of their job.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. This week is the first of two episodes examining a far-reaching proposal on how the United States Space Force could define its jobs and manage its workforce to perform its mission to protect and defend America's interests in space. Right now, Space Force is using an air-minded system from the Department of the Air Force that is a holdover from when space professionals were under the Air Force. But the Space Force mission is just completely different from the Air Force mission, from required skills and experience to the physics of flight. So about two years ago, the Space Force leadership reached out to the RAND Corporation and asked its team to come up with a new plan, which RAND recently published. In this episode, we're going to hear from two of the three RAM Proposal authors, Larry Hanser and Jennifer Lee, as well as two space power experts, Chris Stone and Brent Zyarnik, to give you a foundation, the basics on force organization and officer development, and why the Air Force way of doing things is, well, inadequate for the Space Force, even stifling. Here's our conversation. Hello, Larry, Jennifer, Chris, and Brent. Welcome to all to the Downlink podcast.
2: Hi, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us.
1: We have a large group of great thinkers on this episode. So before we jump into the discussion, let's take a moment for each of you to briefly introduce yourself and your interest in this episode's important topic, the Space Force workforce and developing a unifying culture. And I encourage you to please plug your books. Chris, you are a regular on the podcast. Why don't you kick us off?
3: Sure. My name is Christopher Stone. I'm Senior Fellow for Space Deterrence Studies with the National Institute for Deterrence Studies in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm the uh, author of a book called Reversing the Dow uh, Framework for Credible Space Deterrence, and I am a former Special Assistant to a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy.
2: And Brent? Hi,
3: um, I'm uh, Brent
2: Zarnick. I'm an associate professor at the uh, Air University. We're shortly moving the uh, space professional military development to uh, Johns Hopkins University in the next few months. So I'll be uh, teaching war theory and space power theory in D.C., and I'm also a retired Air Force Reserve space officer. Uh, I retired as a lieutenant colonel after being D.O. and squadron commander of the 310th Operation Support Squadron, where we dealt with reserve space training.
1: And you have some books, Brent.
2: I have literally sold uh, singles of them. But, uh, yeah, I've got a book on developing national power in space, my uh, space power theory, and uh, two books on General um, Tommy Power, the uh, third strategic air command commander during the Cold War, and a very interesting space thinker.
1: And Jennifer? You're also a published book author. Your book titled Training Cyber Warriors was published in 2015. Take us a moment and tell us about yourself and
0: what you do at the RAND Corporation and your upcoming book. Thanks, Laura. Jennifer Lee here, Senior Management Scientist at the RAND Corporation. Um, essentially, in my work as a management scientist at RAND, I focus on organizations, workforce development, leadership strategy, organizational culture, and change. Relevant to today, I'm one of the authors of the paper that we will be talking about, Designing a New Framework for the U.S. Space Force Workforce, and upcoming is another paper uh, that I've written with a colleague on the topic of developing U.S. Space Force organizational culture with future-facing intention, and that will be coming out soon. Excellent. And
1: Larry, you're bringing up the rear because I'm tossing the first question to you. But before I do that, please introduce yourself and what you do at RAND.
4: Uh, Thanks, Laura. I am actually I'm listed in the document as a behavioral scientist. Uh, I am that's a category that RAND uses to categorize as one of the categories for its workforce. I am actually an industrial organizational psychologist uh, dealing with, and I've, I've worked on military personnel issues essentially my entire career. I've been at RAND, I just passed 34 years, and uh, a couple of the highlights of the work that I've done, or the things that I've been involved in, uh, in the 90s, you may remember there was concern with regard to allowing gays, gay and lesbian folks into the military services. That was quite an interesting project that I had a hand in. More recently, Jennifer, actually Jennifer and I and another colleague had had worked on increasing professionalism uh, in the Air Force. After this particular paper that we're talking about today, I want to point out, uh, I also had a hand with another colleague in drafting language for Title X, To establish the to to specify some establishment of the space force, and we have a document. I think it's actually already published online about some of the things still remaining to be done in order for the space force to achieve some of the workforce challenges that they that they're trying to trying to work through, such as the uh, full time versus part time thing. Anyway, that's a little bit about me.
1: Thank you. This is such a stellar panel, and thank you again all for joining. Now, Larry, I'd really like to dive into your expertise because while the words are English, what does it actually mean to be a behavioral scientist? And, you know, why does Rand have that as a particular designation?
4: Uh, yes. Well, as I, as I indicated, it's actually a category of folks at RAND, and uh, it includes people besides psychologists. I think actually psychologists make up the largest number of them, different specialties of psychology. I, I noted I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. There are also social psychologists, some anthropologists and so on, and even sociologists who fall into the category of behavioral scientists. But basically, we're looking at the science of behavior of individuals, how, how individuals uh, behave individually and also how they behave in groups, how you put them together in the workforce and, uh, and so on.
1: And again, I hate to be a pain, but you're also an industrial slash organizational psychologist. How does that differ from, say, someone who's like a TRICARE psychologist? Ah. You know, right. Wait, what does that mean?
4: Right. Uh, usually the first thing I say to people is I am not a therapist. Uh, I'm not trained in, in therapy. I don't do therapy. Industrial organizational psychologist, curiously, I think... Actually, trace back to World War I in, uh, when, when a bunch of psychologists thought, what could they do to help with the war effort? And one of the things that they did was develop some instruments to test people who were joining the army and make some decisions about what kind of careers or what kind of jobs they would have. So, industrial psychologists study things like careers and career development, uh, group and team behavior. In, in workplaces, if you, if you want to to know what kind of a person to hire for a job, uh, we provide that information. We can help you figure out how to select somebody for a job. In more recent years, a main thing that we're involved in is uh, looking into whether there is bias, for example, in hiring processes. An example of, uh, I'll just give one final example that one of our colleagues on this paper, Chetra and I, uh, have worked on in the last couple of years we have a uh, we did a study of admission standards for the Air Force Academy. Did those standards actually end up selecting individuals who would perform better as air Force officers? And we did something similar for West Point. so that's an idea of the kinds of things that industrial organizational psychologists do
1: and Jennifer, you're a management scientist. So, like, how does that differ?
0: Well, I'm often asked, what is management science? And essentially, it's it's a discipline that brings a scientific lens to solving problems for organizations and systems. It draws on fields like engineering, social science, economics, statistics, and others. Um, and brings those perspectives together to approach problems of management and organizations scientifically.
1: Now, you, as in Larry and Jennifer,
0: as well as the third person, and that's
1: Chesha Hardison, researched, debated, and then designed a workforce framework, a matrix to develop Space Force officers and forge an underpinning for branch culture at the behest of the Space Force's top leadership. And in your report called Designing a New Framework for the U.S. Space Force Workforce, you detailed three key features leadership is looking for. Could you explain what those features are and the overarching goal of your work?
4: Ah, That's a good question. Um, So... One of the things that historically, that uh, and histor by history, I mean here, just a few years ago, when the space War force was initiated, was a concern that it was being a very small military service. There were some issues that they faced, unlike the issues, uh, workforce development kinds of issues that that the army and air force and uh, coast guard and so on face. So one of the things that that came to us was a question of: Did they really need career fields? Uh, you know, was there some other way for them to be uh, to be organized? And they basically said, "We'd like for you to basically throw out all of these kind of standard ways of thinking about this and see if you could help us to develop a workforce framework that would that would work for them." I, Jennifer, I think you've got a couple of other thoughts on this on the these uh,
0: well. Yeah. So just sort of elaborating on what Larry said, essentially, when this question was brought to us, we were asked to think about designing the Space Force officer workforce, beginning with a clean sheet of paper. So that phrase was actually used in our discussions with uh, with the various leaders that we spoke with from Space Force. And essentially they wanted to think about alternative frameworks that were independent of what's already being done in the Air Force and in the other, other US military services. And they openly said, feel free to differ greatly. They, they wanted to emphasize that They wanted to create something that was space-specific and not necessarily just following a sister service. And another thing that was important was to think about ways to foster a positive organizational culture that would allow them to attract and retain the very high-caliber individuals that they knew they would need to embody the talent of, of the U.S.
4: Space Force. So if, if I could jump in and elaborate a little bit, and I think, I think Brent will probably understand some of this. One of the things that, uh, that came initially with the Space Force was concerned with what the Air Force has called tribes or silos. The Air Force sometimes refers to—I uh, don't know how much outside of the Beltway it gets, you know, talked about—but essentially, the fighter mafia, uh, where the the main the main purpose of the Air Force was essentially like steel on targets, and the people that did that were fighter pilots. The Space Force was always considered to be like an information provider, like a service provider, um, you know, looking down from the sky. To help the Air Force and the other services do their thing, and in about 2013, I think it was General Hyten who wrote a report, moving thinking about this about space as actually another warfighting arena. As part of the Air Force, the Space Force was kind of the, if I can use this term, the red-haired stepchild. Did not uh, I? I know Brent was. Brent has talked about how. He teaches at uh, at the Air War College. One of the things that we heard about is how the Space Force basically didn't get much traction at the Air War College. You know, they the emphasis was more on the Air Force end of things than on the than on the space work. And so, one of the things that that the Space Force was trying to achieve was kind of to come out from under that shadow. And develop something that was unique. And uh, Jennifer and I were, were talking about this recently how, you know, if you, if, if you were taking the Space Force essentially out of the Air Force and you didn't want it to look like the Air Force, what would you do? And how could you keep it from looking like the Air Force and not getting all of the concerns that you had with the Air Force structure as part of the Space Force structure? Uh, and I'll just say, say one other thing. You know, the Space Force has very few occupational disciplines as part of it. It's, it's highly technical. And uh, some of those technical, maybe all of those technical fields are highly sought after in the private sector, right? Particularly maybe the cyber people so you you'd want to create a system where individuals working in the space force could see themselves as a career in the space force and feel valued so that they wouldn't you know that they that they wouldn't uh, uh say gee i could be making a lot more money out in the private sector in in cyber
1: and jennifer you mentioned this why was the focus of your work centered on officer development specifically
0: Well, the answer to that is actually pretty straightforward. First, it was the question that they asked us to look at. Essentially, you can think of it as addressing the crucial question of how is this small new service going to develop pathways that in turn develop those who will become its most senior uniformed leaders? And um, at the same time, while we did focus on officers for this particular effort, it can be said that the approach can be adapted for the enlisted workforce. And um, and we mentioned this briefly in the paper, that this can be adapted to other parts of the workforce, not only officers, but that is what we used as a starting
4: point. One other, one other thing that, you know, we've talked about the size of the Space Force. And without without giving numbers, um, one of the things that's most exciting to me actually about working, for, working on Space Force things is that it is so different from the other military services. The Air Force, for example, has somewhere, I was looking at this just the other day on another project. They have something like 65,000 officers, just the officers in the Air Force the The Coast Guard is a total of like thirty five thousand people if you look at a small at at what you might consider to be a small military service the space force the 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 four occupations or disciplines that the space force has they have they have satellite operators uh there are somewhere around fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred of them. They have people that work at the um, in acquisition at the Space Systems Command, and there are also about sixteen, seventeen hundred 1,700 of them. But where it really gets interesting is, uh, at least when they were, a- as of a year or so ago, cyber officers, only 150 cyber officers, and only 150 intel officers. So we're talking about a total officer corps, of, you know, maybe 7,000, something like that, total for the officers. And the the enlisted folks, uh, basically the enlisted force is not really going to be all that much larger. I think actually the entire thing is maybe 17,000 to 20,000. So it's a tiny, it's a tiny, tiny thing. and And that changes a lot.
1: And just for everybody's uh, comparison, so that they can sort of visualize it, that number is compared to the Air Force. Air Force is roughly 330,000 strong. And I do mean roughly, but yeah, it's it's hundreds of thousands compared to the Space Force. So just to kind of understand its place in the whole development of the U.S. military forces, um, in order to understand the road ahead for the Space Force, I say it's best to look in the rearview mirror and see where we've come from. And Brent, you are a professor, a scholar of both air power and space power, as well as a space operator with more degrees than my arm is long. Suffice it to say, air power as well as space power has been CRISPR spliced into your DNA. So, historically, where does the Department of the Air Force? Officer force management framework come from? What's the history behind it?
2: Well essentially the history starts all the way back in the Signal Corps you know just uh, before World War one but uh, right after you know Orville and uh, Wilbur Wright's flight, if you look at the early writings in the early 20s of uh, General Billy Mitchell, uh, he thought there would be two types of officers in the in the Air Force uh, pilots and maintenance officers. And there wouldn't be a whole heck of a lot of maintenance officers. It would be mostly uh, enlisted work. But as time went on and air power got more developed, uh, better equipment, more people, uh, more missions, they decided that they had to have a newer and broader core of people that were trained in very uh, different disciplines. Uh, You know, first there were pilots, uh, and then the best pilots were trained as navigators. But then eventually they split um, the aviation you know, uh, officer groups from pilots uh, only to pilots and then navigators and later uh, bombardiers uh, expanding the officer corps like that. And then you had non-rated officers like maintenance officers, intelligence officers, and then, you know, logistics people, uh, the whole thing sort of exploded um, after World War One, especially in World War Two, And, uh, you know, the officer corps expanded and evolved to master air power which the air force did uh until you know you've got today you've got various flavors of pilot like they uh we heard earlier fighter pilots mobility pilots special operations pilots bombers uh and then those war fighting functions if you want to call them that way like uh you know like uh, the space force tends to call their uh their functions um These functions were also, hey, I'm a navigator assigned to this particular uh, mission, bombing, you know, air superiority. uh, And uh, space sort of evolved under that uh, in that space operations in the Air Force was exactly a secondary uh, support mission uh, that were initially engineers that were trained as acquisitions people first. They helped design and build these systems and then operated it and then later the uh, missileer officers that were in charge of uh, operating you know uh, our deterrent force uh, merged with the space engineers to become sort of a space missile career field um which operated our satellites and then you know uh, operated our missiles uh, eventually merging into uh, or you know eventually becoming just the space operations people uh, that existed up until recently and were pretty much brought over, um, you know, in full into the uh, the Space Force. So um, let me just jump in Cornier, here real quick, though. Go ahead. And the
1: reason is this, is that, you know, a lot of this work that Rand has done, is looking at a framework as underpinning a culture and also underpinning, you know, the actual development of, of officers. Right. And I know that, you know, you, you've commanded people, you have been intimately involved in developing your officers as well as the development of your career. So just to be clear, and perhaps just simply to deepen my understanding, initially, back when, before World War II, weren't, Airmen grafted onto and measured against an Army officer development framework designed for the ground domain, where, you know, to this day, and this is truly, truly oversimplified, but ground forces and, you know, ground force officers, you know, they use rifles and artillery, you know, it's it, and instead of bombs and wing mounted Gatling guns, yet the Army Air Corps officers. Were really measured up against rifles and artillery. I mean, am I right in understanding that there's, how should I say, a pretty major mismatch?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you're you're right there. And what happened and why the Air Force became independent eventually is because the uh, the people in the uh, the Air Corps, you know, the the flyers uh, felt that they were uh, mistreated by being. Compared to other people in the more traditional army, be uh, be they cavalry or infantry or artillery personnel, and, and that would like uh, they really, suffered under quote, and, as, and that would
1: really like hurt their careers. I mean, if, if you don't get promoted, if you don't get to go to school, if you don't get you know command and and forward forward motion, you kind of leave.
2: And truth be told, this is a lot of why uh, the space force uh, eventually separated from the air force as well, because, uh, there weren't as many paths to promotion. You know, the, the big argument is there's never going to be a space operator, uh, as chief of staff of the air force. It's fundamentally, you know, different work. And, you know, the air force is, you know, an air power organization and space could only play a certain role and still be a part of, of air power.
3: I'll just I'll just throw in there a little bit, Brent. Um, one other thing that you have to remember uh, for those that are listening is that, in addition to feeling like they were being left out of schools and things, like like Laura mentioned, is that um, in many cases the the air service, the Air Corps, were all were led by non flying people. Um, the Army would put whoever they thought was was good <laughs> enough as a general or a colonel to lead that. So many cases, you had officers who cross-trained into flying, even though they really had no desire to, and they were they were the ones running the show. And uh, so there there are parallels with that and with the space space world under the Air Force. And I guess the other difference is is that when the Air Force broke away from the Army, they had a separate department, whereas the Space Force, it still has one foot in the Air Force door and one foot out. So while they they have some control over their own career development um, and they're getting more uh you know thoughtful in that in some ways uh, they're still not quite as independent as the Air Force was when they broke off from the army
1: so Christopher Brent, you know now we're decades since the time the Air Force was under the Army's boot could you explain how today's framework has Propelled Air Force officers and culture to effectively secure the air domain, because a lot of you know when, when we're talking about this this framework that the Space Force has asked for from RAND, it, it is at the end of the day to de- to deliver a mission, right? So how has the the framework of the that the Air Force has historically you know growing out of the U- U.S. Army? How has it effectively secured the air domain?
2: Well, sort of an iron law of, of economics is development comes from specialization, right? You know, uh, more uh, more efficiency, more effectiveness. So when the Air Force was able to get away from the from the Army, ultimately you didn't have the Army's goals as leading the Air Service. It was at least organizationally, it was the Air Force's you know, the Air Force could spend money the way they saw to further the air power mission in, you know, support of the national policy rather than just the secretary of war or the uh, chief of staff of the army's policy. So airmen who knew the air domain best, so goes the argument, were able to develop air power as well as possible um, as professionally as possible to secure American interests, rather than merely serving as a subset of serving Army interests that would ultimately impact national, you know, policy and goals. So uh, again, the the Air Force evolved and was allowed to evolve, uh, you know, pretty much find its own way uh, with as little external, you know, uh, meddling as possible, at least from senior military uh, Army. Uh, folks to do the best they can to grow as well as they
3: could to support the nation.
1: Well, I'm shocked that Chris doesn't have anything to say on this.
3: No, I do. I just figured you'd have more questions. So I'll I'll go ahead and I'll chime in then. The other thing that's, that's important is I also, I also, um, as an air force guy um, when we came in and we, I knew I was going to be a space officer. I've done air nuclear missiles, space, and a bunch of other things is everything that we learned, we had these little books they gave us that gave us all sorts of historical stuff about the Air Force. Um, Very little about space things. We may have had like two satellites in the back of our knowledge book at training that said, ooh, there's a satellite and a couple of rockets. Um, When the Air Force, uh, I, I guess, left the Army and became their own thing, their training was strictly focused on airplanes, Bernoulli's principles, things of that sort. They didn't really care one way or the other about the land component, their job was, as Brent said, affecting national policy and winning war from the air. So when you have all those other distractions, like, like Laura, like, like you mentioned, hey, I need to go to Command and General Staff College if I want to make colonel. But a lot of the aviation folks weren't getting those schools, they were going to air schools, like Air Corps Tactical School. And that's important to to advance as an airman. But they weren't getting what they needed to make rank in the in the bigger army because of their view as a support branch and not as a as a combat arm necessarily initially um even as a designated combat arm, they were still viewed as sort of a subordinate arm so when, when the when the air force broke off, everything had to do about airplanes and that makes total sense. that's what they should be doing, just as the army should be focused on land dominance and the navy on sea dominance.
1: So let's now turn back to the Space Force. And this question is open to everyone in the group, all of you. Why can't Space Force officers then be developed using the current Department of the Air Force framework? An outsider question is going to be, well, you know, the framework worked before for space operators when they were in the Air Force. It's kind of working now, right? Or, Or is it? And, and yes, really, I, I truly get it. This really may feel like a stupid question, but if it was fit for purpose, the Space Force wouldn't have asked and paid Rand for a spanking brand new framework. And at the end of the day, really, it's going to be the administration and Congress that have to agree, and that question has to be answered simply, and the response must be received favorably. Any takers?
4: Sure. I'll, I'll start. So it kind of depends what we're talking about in terms of development, right? The reason why, because I think in a way you're comparing the workforce structure that we have with the notion of development, and there are elements of development in it, but uh, but the question, you know, the question becomes one of how do you have how do you provide an upward-looking career to a cyber officer in the space force where it is such a small group of individuals and the one of the things that you'll see we'll talk about this this later I'm sure is that we have in mind how to how to create better I won't say better more opportunities for an in, for a cyber officer or an intel officer to move up in in that sense the the development path we envision is a different development path uh, the other thing about this is that with a small force, because because all of the military services are, you got to start as a second lieutenant before you can ever become a colonel or a general. So if somebody falls out in a small force, sort of mid to late in their career, like as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, that can screw up the the career paths of individuals beneath them. So part of what the development process is about is being able to keep that flow of individuals upward. And I'll just build on,
0: <laughs> I I just thought I'd add sort of a concrete example to comments that both Chris and Larry have made. It, Chris talked about the mismatch uh, when Air Force uh, members were put through Army-designed Training, And the same thing was happening for space officers. So, for example, if you were someone working in acquisitions and you were going to take a course, and we heard this from space officers themselves, that the, the materials used and the examples used would have nothing to do with the space systems that were part of their job in acquisitions. They would be very much tailored to the job of someone acquiring air systems. And they're very different. And so to an outsider, you might think, well, it's acquisitions. You're learning how to acquire things. What's the big deal? But if you're doing those jobs, it's a very big deal. And space officers were missing out
3: yeah and also um space acquisitions has different rules in some cases, not just different systems that they have to abide by, because Congress, uh, as they did with the space force being birthed in such a small fashion, it was artificially constrained at the numbers that they are, whereas as Brent mentioned, when the Air Force separated, they were able to advocate and grow so the the number of wings in the current air force today. Uh, And the number of wings that we had in, say, 1955 versus 1935 are very different in numbers. They were able to grow and hire and recruit and all sorts of good things, as well as grow their reserve and guard components in order to meet their mission, which was, as Brent said, achieve national policy, strategic aims, military aims through airplanes. In the Space Force, they haven't had that opportunity because of the artificial constraints put on both acquisitions, uh, career development, and operational uh, mission sets. And so I think part of the goodness of having studies like this is to kind of say, okay, uh, at least I hope the question is asked, you know, are we too small in order to get after the mission? Because if we're just going to be a support force, then maybe, maybe we can deal with 7,000 people or 20,000 people. But if we're supposed to be what the Space Force was intended to be, which is a warfighting service, co-equal with the others, then you know that may be something that has to be thought of from mm-hmm. a career development argument, as well as a just a service mission argument. And I know for a fact, with the service components that Space Force is creating for all the combatant commands, um, one of the mm-hmm. arguments of having those is to try to argue to Congress, look, if you want us to integrate space into the terrestrial fight as well as handle the space related threat, then we're really gonna need the bodies to be trained and equipped to go to these places and different commands and be the experts. And they just don't have the bodies right now to stretch them across the world. So we're seeing a lot of people dual and triple hatted. And that can be a real problem if war happens.
2: Well I don't I think all those were, were fine comments. Um I just uh it's, it's interesting because uh, especially when, you know, the two authors here are, uh, uh, you know, looked at uh, warfighting functions and, uh, you know, versus occupational competencies, the Space Force was in sort of a hard, you know, a, a hard way or Air Force Space Command was in a, a, a difficult position trying to develop itself into the Space Force because the operational competencies were, you know, essentially Air Force specialty codes, uh, the, the specializations in the Air Force. Space operators would go mostly to the Space Force, though not all. But for intelligence, engineering, cyber, and acquisitions people, most of them Mm -hmm. stayed in the Air Force itself. And they had to be, uh, you know, if you wanted to go into the Space Force, you had to apply for it, and only a few would be accepted. But uh, to Christopher's point, uh, or, you know, uh, Mr. Stone's uh, (laughs) point, about being uh, very small, maybe not big enough, one interesting occupational competency uh, that the Space Force, at least some people, wanted was scientists, because the Air Force has a scientist career field. Unfortunately, there was no path that the Space Force could give to scientists that would allow them to make O-6 or Colonel, mm-hmm. because it was just not big enough in the Air Force, and they could not make it big enough in the Space Force, even though Uh, A very senior leader in Air Force Space Command and the Space Force now really tried to push it as hard as they could. The scientists just could not come over because we again or the Space Force could not offer them a path to senior leadership. And, And that's going to be an issue for quite some time.
1: Now, in part two of this discussion, we're going to tackle what Larry and Jennifer propose. But before we close out this episode, there is a bit of news coming out of the House Armed Services Committee regarding Congressional Space Force Liaison Office and a Space National Guard. Quickly Space Force Liaison Office, yes or no, and why?
3: Yes, I think you're talking about legislative liaison. And the answer is, yeah, you have to, mm-hmm. uh, because every service has to have their advocates with Congress. And you can't rely on uh, the Air Force Department to be your advocate for you. One, they just don't have the people. Uh, and two, you need to have somebody who knows the mission sets to to uh, both Larry and uh and our other colleagues' points, and as a result of that, it's really hurt the Space Force, not having a legislative liaison.
4: The National Guard is a whole other issue, um, and and quite a quite a different issue. And I know there have been some conversations about that. And uh, I and another colleague um, have had a hand in discussions with uh, you know with uh, drafting some changes to Title Ten. And I know that the The levels above us there was discussion about whether the national guard would have a role. My understanding uh is as of this point, they don't and i think I think part of it has to do with um the idea how is a national how is a state national guard related to the space domain it's it's harder i think it's just harder to imagine. Where the the National Guard, let's say of Wisconsin, I'm from Wisconsin originally, and actually I was in the Air National Guard in the uh, Vietnam War era. There's a there's a National Guard mission, and um, I
1: there oh, you are in like probably the best company to get that particular question um, answered, honestly. <laughs> Chris, I'm sorry, I'm just just jumping right in. Chris, Brent, you know you have heard that there is language for a space national guard in Title Ten in the House Armed Services Committee's markup, so think about what Larry just said, because that really is going to be the question that has to be answered. You know, what, how does space fit into a National Guard sort of situation for say Wisconsin?
3: Yeah, I'll start and then Brent will probably chime in. So I'm a National Guard space officer. And I can tell you right now that 60% of the warfighting capability of the Space Force is not in the Space Force. It's in the Air National Guard right now. And that's because when all the other components moved over from the active component, the reserve and the guard did not. The reserve is a little more unique. It's easier to get pulled into that um, active title 10 component because they operate in title 10. But if you look at what, like for example, the the reason why the state function works is several reasons. One, you have different titles, title 32, title 10 and state active duty that gives the flexibility of being able to use space capabilities and knowledge and know-how to support state and local officials that are already leveraging space from both imagery, communications, and other sorts of things for for development work, for disaster response, things of that sort, things that U.S. Northern Command leverage on a day-to-day basis, and they have a space component. The National Guard um, has a lot, enough people in there Uh, with that knowledge and know-how that have that domestic operational experience. Another piece that just came out in one of the recent Chief of Space Operations, C-Notes, is on community engagement and helping the the American public understand the importance of space to to the general public and society as a whole, as well as the military. And one of the key aspects of the National Guard is the fact that there are more National Guardsmen around most people in the country than there are active component Space Force people. So you have space space related trained Air National Guard and Army National Guardsmen scattered all over the place outside of the generic main hubs of the Space Force that speak to that mission set and help or could help with that messaging. And unfortunately, that hasn't been leveraged as much because of a, I believe, a misunderstanding of what many consider to be strictly a, a federal mission. Um, When if you look at how California uses it, California fire uses space satellites, infrared and and stuff for for missions. A lot of that comes from, from the, the Space Force and other, other, other commercial providers, but it also comes from the Space Force. And so when you have people that understand not only the local area, they understand the mission sets of, of the Space Force, they understand a federal mission and can do the warfighting piece, but they also understand that community engagement to show how space affects society. I think that's something that's definitely worth plugging into. And all the units are there and uh, not every state needs one but we're already placed, the people are there, the missions are there, the units are there. It's just a matter of getting it organized. Brent, over
2: to you. <laughs> well, you know, putting away my, uh, my neutral academic hat and my <laughs> uh, putting back on my firebrand retired colonel hat, uh, as a member of a defeated service, the, uh, the Space Force Reserve, the reserve component is extremely important uh, for all services including the space Force, though space Force leadership has not paid any attention to the reservists at all. And you know since the reservists are not going to be around and part-time space Force people are not reserve component people uh, and, and won't ever be reserve component people, you know the Space National Guard is the most important thing that the space Force can do right now because it's the only way to have citizen guardians. And, uh, you know, there's a much in my opinion, there's a much better call for a state mission in the space forces than air power in states, because why does Montgomery, Alabama need an an F-16 wing? Uh, There's no state mission for F-16s, but there are a whole bunch of reasons why you might need people that are really start, you know, really smart in space, capable of helping a governor repair that state's dependence on, you know, information and data from space or defending the state's interest in space power, in space support, in data, in GPS, in, you know, any number of different things, remote sensing in case of space conflict. Uh, I would think the Space National Guard would be very important in putting together and reconstituting space's positive impact to each one of their states in the event of conflict and to expand economic development through space in times of peace. But I don't hear anyone talking about that too much. Can, but uh, this is all interesting stuff for how the Space Force should be uh, should a- evolve in the future. And I look forward to hearing what Rand has to say about it because it's good stuff.
4: Can I just uh, quickly eat a little bit of crow in the... In the presence of my colleagues, I think actually, and just make one comment, I think actually the the issue with the National Guard relative to the reserves um, has to do with the, with the concept that the Space Force has been trying to push, which is a fairly permeable uh, barrier between part-time and full-time. And one of the primary barriers was with re-scrolling that, that would have to occur when, when somebody moved around. And this was what was behind uh, basically not having a reserve component. And uh, I think because the National Guard is in a separate title, it, it makes it a little, I'll just say, I think it makes it a little more difficult to, to use the National Guard, not to say, you know, all of the points you guys have made are excellent points, more difficult to use them in, to use them as a contingent workforce that you could easily bring on full-time if you needed them but i'm sure there's a lot more to be said about this oh sure i completely agree with the whole uh, scrolling
2: process i had to do that a couple of times in my career and it was tough it was not as tough as not being paid for six months but you know there's a whole <laughs> bunch of different issues
1: All right, folks. That's all the time that we have for this episode. There is going to be a part two where we're actually going to dive into the framework matrix for Space Force officer development. Anyway, until then, all of you take care and we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the Downlink podcast.
3: Thanks very much. Appreciate
1: it.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the down Link on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.